This morning reading comes from Isaiah chapter 62, 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called by my delight is in her and your name married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please bow and pray with me. Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, let the words spoken this morning be of you and reflect your will, Lord. Let those who hear be of a mind to listen. This we pray in your son Jesus' name, amen. On your bulletin and at home, I'll give you a minute, but on your bulletin there's an image, image of two children. I want you to take a minute and look at that. As you do, I will read excerpts from a famous speech given August 28, 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, DC. It was a rally for jobs and for freedom. You might have heard it before, maybe a little bit. Now, let you know, these are excerpts, so they're not in, it's not all of it, I should say. So if you're waiting to hear your favorite part, I might not say it. Just, just a heads up. We have also come to this hollow spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is not time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift up our nation from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock a brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality to all of God's children. It would be fatal 
for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment and to underestimate the determination of its colored citizens. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the colored citizen is granted his citizen rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of your trials and tribulations. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by storms of persecutions and staggered by the winds of police brutality. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you, my friends, we have the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged for the color of their skin, but by their character. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be engulfed, every hill shall be exalted, every nation shall be made low, the rough places will be made plains, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to climb up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. When we let freedom ring, when we let freedom ring from every tenement, in every hamlet, from every state, in every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old spiritual, free at last, free at last, Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. The image on the bulletin and the image on your screens are of my parents who in 1963 would be 12 years old. I am a part of the legacy Part of the reason I wanted their image on the bulletin is to show that this isn't a then claim. This isn't a back in the day. This isn't a oh long time ago. We still face some of these injustices in the speech. I don't know, did you figure out whose speech that was yet? that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave in 1963. So when we look in the text, Isaiah, Isaiah 62, one through five, we see that for God's, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. So the I in this context is, is the Lord. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until she's vindicated, and then it goes on. So let's, let's hear a little bit about Isaiah. I want, this is 
still rooted in the gospel, what I have to say. I know that there are arguments that state that you know, social, social justice isn't really, you know, where do you find that in the Bible? Come on, point to it, you know. And so for those who say that, here we go. <laughs> here we go. And then it'll, I won't say deviate, but there will be other, other theologians who I will address who get to the heart of social justice in the gospel. Here, Isaiah, we'll start there, Old Testament. So in Isaiah, these are the years in Israel's history when they are in exile. They aren't in their home. So they are having to be reassured that God is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God that brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, into a promised land. That that God still exists and that God still sees them, still sees their trials and tribulations. But Israel is in despair. It's the Assyrian Empire that is now occupying the northern kingdom, Israel. It's because they didn't listen to God in the first place. They oppressed those who were in need. They oppressed and caused injustice among injustice. And if they didn't cause it, they definitely didn't speak out against it. So this, I will no longer be silent, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's almost like a slight, not necessarily foreshadowing, but it's ironic because you, it's saying, Israel, remember when you were silent when there were injustices against individuals? Remember how you didn't speak out? But God is saying, guess what? The time has come. I am now going to speak out. There was a disparity between the haves and the have-nots. There were those who were abundantly rich and there those who were abjectly poor. There was no middle. So this was now a time where there's like a leveling, where everyone was kind of at the same place of status. Of, it was a communal kind of uh, despair, collective despair. There was no stratification. Everyone was pretty much feeling it. So this overall message is to trust God because the vision hasn't been realized yet. This section of Isaiah is believed to have been written 125 years after the initial occupation. Can you imagine 125 years and constantly hearing God is with you? The Lord will make a way. God is not forgotten about you. 125 years. So this is there to encourage, to say, Hey, I know it looks bad, but remember, God is with you. God has not left you. It's going to work out. So moving along, we have this naming, this area where it talks about having a new name, right? You will no longer be 
term forsaken. So it's, you have a new name because now people are looking or looking upon Israel and saying, where is your God, right? So they weren't the, they didn't have the glory of the Lord or people weren't referring to them by anything that was remotely, I guess, glorious. Everything was desolate, dire, despair, that that became their identity. So to get a new name means that the identity was going to change. So you're no longer going to be forsaken. You're no longer going to be called desolate. When people hear that, they won't think of you. The Lord is saying, I'm giving you a new name. My delight is in her. And your land married. I know some of you are like, what the married component? What was the big deal to be married? You wanted to be married. If Israel is, in, when you look at the, the noun that's being used, Israel is a female. Uh, it's, it's using a female pronoun or it has like the female ending. And so the Lord then is the male in this, in this aspect. But for a female to be married was her glory. It was her honor. Can we relate to that? Maybe in 1963? Maybe. Maybe not so much 2022. But some of us here have been married for like 60 plus years. Awesome job. So you, I think some of you can't relate more than others. It's like, well, I'm not saying marriage is glorious all the time. I'm saying to be married can, can be glorious when it's to the Lord. In this context, we got to be really specific. So there's this new name. In the Jewish tradition, there was also not only with the new name came a new status, but there was this there was this custom of if someone were terminally ill, they would receive a new name. Can you guess why? If you're if you're sick and you you know you're about to check out. Why would you need a new name? I mean, that'd be a tax nightmare. <laughs> no? Okay, well, here we go. <laughs> to confuse death. I know you're like, wait, that's, that's ridiculous. But, you know, that's what it was. You had a new name because if death is coming around and your name is on death's roll, you're like, oh, you're looking for... Hezekiah, you know, Hezekiah is no longer here. <laughs> you know, got a new name. I don't know where Hezekiah is. Check down the hall. <laughs> but that name change meant that you could live again because death passed you by. So here's more contemporary by the Bible standards. Uh, this was a, a commentator um, in the Crusades era. Anything big happened with the Christians and the Jews in the Crusades era? I forget sometimes. So in the Middle Ages, uh, Rashi, he lived during this time. And for those who have forgotten, the Crusades were about spreading the gospel to all the lands, sort of the Bible, and in particular, those areas that were occupied by Jews. So you had the soldiers that would just go in, it's like, are you converting? or the sword, which do, you, which do you want? So it wasn't really a choice. I mean, it's like the sword, please. I don't know, but sometimes 
they sometimes people did choose the Bible, but the point is that's not the best way to evangelize. So Rashi is coming up during this era, and he's so for him, I will not be silent, I will not be still, is about not forgetting the legacy of Israel, not forgetting what is really taking place during the Crusades, that this isn't some goodwill mission that these wonderful Christians are on who just happen to bring their weapons with them. That this was an outright assault on a different people who have a different religion. I will not be at peace until victory emerges. So that's in the Middle Ages, Rashi. So then we get to, fast forward a little bit, just a little bit, the 1960s. How many of us were like whooping it up in the 1960s? Few of us, few of us were born. Few of us were maybe glimmer in our parents' eyes. Yeah, right? So 1960s. I'm gonna talk about black liberation theology. Anybody familiar? Yeah, a little bit. Well, here we go. This is coming from Edward Antonio. Black liberation theology is committed to fighting social injustice of every kind. So it's very pluralistic. It's one of the reasons why you can have a civil rights movement, which is for the most part, at least during the 60s, during the height of the civil rights movement, it's about the colored uh, person's advancement. But then years later, you get others that use the same uh, rhetoric or the, the same speech or the same kind of patterns or modalities for affecting change. It's, it's for everyone. It's comprehensive to include social, political, economic, cultural, sexual, religious injustices. It has two categories, two modes. One, struggle for recognition, and then two, economic oppression. Those are the primary modes. And we see that, we see that in the civil rights movement, it's recognition. We are colored, we are Negro, we are black, we are African American, recognize our being, our state of being. We're not asking for anything else. Just recognize that we have the right to exist. Right there. And then with the economic oppression, recognize that there are systems in place that are preventing the advancement of people of color. And so these two injustices, if they exist, will be fought against black theology. It continues, it represents a critical search for a historically black Christian form of reflection coming from the twin realities of slavery in the past and the experience of racism in the present. Let me break that down a little bit. What it means is coming to America or being brought to America with its whiteness and being taught a Christianity that doesn't 
look like you if you're not white. And being taught a white Christianity, what black theology seeks to do is find the place of the colored individual within the Bible when your reality is slavery and racism. If the message that you're getting is wait by and by, when you die, it'll all get better, or your place is in the back. And using the text to substantiate that, a black theology counters that and says, that's not, that's not true. When we see that the people of Israel also were enslaved and that God brought them out of slavery and that there are many stories of those in the Bible who are oppressed and Jesus goes to them. A black theology. James H. Cone, who primary a black the theologian in in the heyday, so in the 60s. 1969, he wrote a book, A Theology of Black Liberation. Now, you might not agree with all of this, and that's okay, completely okay, it's fair. He writes, Christian theology is a theology of liberation. He doesn't see a distinction between the two. He doesn't see that you can claim Christ and not seek to be liberated or not seek to liberate others. He writes that the task of Christian theology is to analyze the meaning of hope in God in such a way that the oppressed community of a given society will risk all for earthly freedom made possible in the resurrection of Jesus. So you see how that's counter then to the, what I, differentiating as white theology. And I know it's kind of cringe, but I need to make a distinction from the theology that was existing and why there is a separation with the different theologies. Again, the meaning of hope in God in such a way that the oppressed community of a given society will risk all for earthly freedom made possible in the resurrection of Jesus. So that's counter to what Blacks were being told that they had to wait until the resurrection, that the promise for them was when they died, that they got the goodness of the Lord in heaven, but on earth had to suffer because of the color of their skin. Completely opposite. That freedom could be had on earth that the joys of life could be experienced on earth for all people and not just some people get to experience freedoms, liberties, economic progression, but others who God made had to wait. I know it's getting heavy. Black theology. So we talked about Christian theology that theology is a theology of religion, of liberation. So black theology, according to James Cone. Theology of liberation because it is a theology which arises from the identification 
with the oppressed blacks of America seeking to interpret the gospel of Jesus in the light of the black condition. How do you find Jesus when you're told that you're lesser than? How do you find Jesus when your children are given lesser than resources? How do you find Jesus when you can't get a job? How do you find Jesus when your churches are being burned? How do you find Jesus when your homes are being racked with drugs, your communities, drugs, and violence, and pestilence, and you can't even get a home loan. They see you, they hear your name, and automatically you cannot get this loan. Or the prices change. How, how, how do you find Jesus in the midst of all of that? When you see that it can be better, but you're being told it can, just not for you. How do you find Jesus? Cone goes on to say, there is no theology of the gospel which does not arise from an oppressed community. That's a different take on the Bible. That you see God the most in the midst of oppression? Wait, that God comes out of oppression? How can that be? that you have to experience oppression possibly? That that makes you one with, I don't know. Then he goes on because he was hearing the arguments, like black theology isn't Christian though. James, it's not Christian. To that he says, it's Christian because it centers on Christ. That's what makes it Christian. It's Christ-focused. So then, why black theology? Well, it's revolutionary. And he says that a setting can never be nonpartisan theology. He's saying that in, when you claim Christianity, you can't be nonpartisan. Uh-oh, we just got really political really quickly. But when we talk about liberation, what, what are we talking about? Politics, economics, rules and regulations, money. Mm. You can't be nonpartisan. You have to choose a side. He said, but isn't that kind of, he's like, but he was hearing that God is colorblind. You may argue with that. James says, in a racist society, God is never colorblind. You go like, what? Well, he's like, well, how can God be colorblind when you have racism? How can God be colorblind when there are differences being made based upon how someone looks? God must see color to know that there is a difference that's happening amongst God's people. If we can see color, why does God have to be blind? Right? Hmm. I mean, God made the distinctions. It's us that evaluates those distinctions. It's us who says, based upon that difference that God gave you, we're going to treat you a certain way. Based upon that difference that God has blessed you with, you don't get to do this. Based upon that difference, 
you can't feed your children. Based upon that difference, you're not going to live in this area. Based upon that difference, your education can only go so high. Based upon that difference, you're not going to elevate in this profession. Why black theology? Because many suffer and not all of them are black which means there must be a distinction between the levels of suffering. And that's not to say suffering more or suffering less, because when you get into that argument, it gets really ugly really quickly. It's not a measure of how much you suffered. Who would say that in the Holocaust, they suffered less than those who suffered through slavery? I'm sure someone would make that argument. But suffering is suffering, regardless of what you look like, what caused it, who you are, when you were there. Suffering is suffering. Many suffer. But in this particular context, not all are black. To conclude, but Terrilyn, I'm not oppressed. Galatians 6, 2, we're to bear one another's burdens. I'm not hungry. Matthew 25, 31 through 40. Lord, when did you see me hungry and feed you? When you did this to me, when you did those to others, you did it for me. But I'm not thirsty. Lord, when did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When you did it to others, you did it for me. I have clothes on my back. I can go shopping wherever I want. When do we see you needing clothes and clothe you? When you did it for others, you did it for me. I have a home. Ha. When you visited those in prison, you visited me. I feel well, I feel good, I don't have any illnesses. When you visited those who were sick, when you prayed with those who were sick, it was like doing it unto me. I'm a good person. Oh mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 6 through 8. To set the captive free. I came to set the captive free. Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. The Lord Jesus Christ. We're all included in that. So whether or not we experience individually the reality of this is that Christianity is a liberation theology because Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. Those who sin, the Lord died on the cross for us. If you've ever not done something that the Lord asked you to do, the Lord died on the cross for us. If you've ever neglected to tell someone you were sorry when you knew you were in the wrong. The Lord died for us. 
The Lord didn't come to condemn. I came not to condemn the world, but I came that you might have life, to have it abundantly, to be free. Amen.